Welcome to Wholesale Change, the webcast and podcast from Distribution Strategy Group, coming to you from sunny, colorful Colorado. We provide thought leadership for wholesale change agents, and if you're on this call, you probably are a wholesale change agent. I want to bring in my co-host, my trusted friend and business partner, the doctor of distribution, Jonathan Bine, PhD. How are you doing today, Jonathan? I'm well, Ian. How are you? Good. We got a heck of a topic this morning. You ready to get into it? Yeah, absolutely. Let's go. All right. So today's topic is why distributors are so great at building the wrong websites. And there's really a couple aspects to this, right, Jonathan? I mean, one's strategic and one's tactical, correct? Yeah, I, I, I think in maybe another view of strategic and tactical would be one's policy and one's technical, but we can go with strategic and tactical. Got it. Okay. Yep. So uh, let's jump into this. The um, uh, There's a bunch of bunch of different reasons that this happens, that distributors, I, I mean, I would say more often than not feel like their e-commerce investment hasn't paid off, that they haven't been successful with what they've been, with what they've done online. And yeah, I think there are a number of reasons for this. It's often the distributor's fault. I'm not saying it's always the distributor's fault. And a lot of times there are different factions within distribution companies that result in a website or digital effort that really doesn't return well. But I think, you know, just as a bottom line requirement, you have to integrate your e-commerce platform fully into your ERP. And if you're not going to do that, it's just never going to work. Well, but I think even before we get into these strategic and tactical issues, let's talk about this distinction of building the right thing versus building the thing right. Uh, that's a concept from at least software engineering, perhaps other engineering as well. Um, and what we're focused on in this discussion is how do you build the right thing? And there's a lot of implications in not building the right thing, as, as Ian was starting to get into We've seen this with companies who spend literally 10 times too much on building an e-commerce site or, or five or 10 times too little. We've seen some spectacular failures. By the way, we got in after the fact. It wasn't, it wasn't on our watch that these <laughs> happened. But really understanding what needs to be built, both strategically and tactically, is key to getting the right decision. And I think what we're starting to see is, a, is an evolution in the ownership of these decisions. And you mentioned that it may not be the distributor's fault. Whether or not it's the distributor's fault, it's attributed to the distributor, right? I think we can yeah, and, and I think, you know, so fair enough. I think that's an important distinction because you can do the project exactly right. The IT department may make no mistakes, but the specs are wrong. So you wind up with the wrong thing. That's right. And then another, another piece on what we're focusing on here, this is not about creative. This is not about the creative aspect of your mm -hmm. website. I think we've all seen the, the billboards, um, We Buy Ugly Houses, and um, as part of our research in distribution sites, we've seen some pretty ugly websites and we probably could or should have a session about that. But this is really about the strategic and tactical aspects uh, even before you get to creative. Yeah, fair enough. But I do think, though, that um, a lot of distributors, they're not certain that they're going to get a return on, the, on their website on their digital investment. So they are kind of doomed from the start because it's not integrated in, into the ERP and it's not really, you know, the same value proposition. So it's a bunch of patchwork, you know, sort of half capabilities that aren't that appealing. Um, and so I think you, you have to commit up front that we're going to do the full thing or else let's just build a brochure site and not even try to do any e-commerce. 
when that kind of thing happens, what do you, what's your understanding of, of how the decision-making works? Who's involved? Is, is this a thing where IT is driving the website versus? Um, no, I, I don't think, I, I think, you know, the, the, if, the, if IT is driving the website, it's because nobody else wants to do it and they are taking the initiative in my experience. It's not that, you know, they've tried to wrest control of the website away from sales and marketing or, other parts of the company, you know, they just see the need. And so they're trying to jump into the breach to make it happen. I think, you know, the, the reality is that all marketing investments are uncertain and they're competing against the certainty of saving the money and taking it to the bottom line. Right. So if it's a million dollars to build a website and I don't, and, and I don't know what I'm going to, if I'm going to get a million and $1 in return in profits, then, and that might mean 10 million or 20 million in sales, depending on your EBIT or your gross margin contribution you know, that's a, that's a tough hurdle. And so, you know, so, so what happens is that uh, the sales and marketing team doesn't really have the data to make the case that it's going to be a profitable investment. And so they wind up with this half measure where they're given a little bit of money to do something, but it's not enough to do the right thing or to do anything that really matters to customers. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things we see often is that, and this is, I think, becoming less common, fortunately, but it's not uncommon that sales reps are opposed to the new website for a variety of reasons. I mean, one, they may not be paid commission on those sales or I've been in environments where they were, but they didn't know it. And in a lot of environments, they view the website as a threat to their compensation and to their job security in the long run. And if you don't get alignment between, I mean, if you're, if you're, if you're in a sales rep driven environment, if you don't get alignment between the sales reps and your web initiatives, then, you know, it's the old, the, the parent will kill the child, right? I mean, the, the, the kings won't uh, risk having any rivals to the throne. And so the salespeople will actively lobby against the success of the website. But I do think this is becoming less of an issue over time. What do you think, Jonathan? Well, what I would say is based on the, on the research we've done, uh, we, we, we do an annual state of distributor e-commerce, actually now e-business survey and, and paper, um, one of the questions we ask is, what are the top ways of driving e-commerce revenue? And I think there's 10 choices. Of the top five, three of them involve people. One is field sales. Another is customer service rep. Another, another is inside sales reps. So these customer-facing personnel are key for the success of this thing happening. Uh, to your point, Ian, if they're not paid the same commission, um, the parent's going to kill the child. The truth is, in the long run, as people start to get to, to scale with e-commerce, if they're starting to see 20, 25%, 30% going through a shopping cart, and there are distributors out there doing that, it probably will reduce the number of sales reps, right? Just to a yeah. certain extent for, for, right? Sure. I think, yeah, maybe. I think the, if you look at in the middle of the COVID crisis, though, how many sales reps wish that their company had a fantastic website that they, so their customers could continue to buy seamlessly? Everyone. So the next one I think is pretty uh, insidious and I've seen this a lot. So, you know, if you're proposing a website investment, a digital investment, then that gets subjected to the rigor that the organization applies to any capital expenditure, which I think on the one hand is fair. On the other hand, uh, can often lead to the wrong conclusion, right? So in the, in the problem is that the ROI models assume that nothing's going to change going forward, right? So it takes, takes your real costs and it says, well, you know, if we spend X on the website, we'll get return Y is Y under or over our ROI hurdle. The problem is 
that this is becoming a survival requirement. I mean, if you don't have, you know, you've got, you've got all these millennials and Gen Z's moving into the workplace. They're the majority of the workforce. Now the workforce continues to get younger. They're not going to interact with you if you don't have good digital capabilities. So the ROI model is assuming this forward going behavior is reflecting historical behavior. And I think, you know, so, so, so what's happening is distributors are deciding not to build the website because the ROI model is flawed because you can't predict the future right now. You know, it's kind of like if, if your competitor announces free same day delivery, well, whether or not that works in your ROI model, you may have to do it just because that's the new competitive standard. And what's happening now is having great digital capabilities is just the standard. Whether or not it works in your ROI model, you may have to do it anyway. And I don't think some senior executives in distribution think about it that way. Well, I think, I think the other piece is, is part of this unfairly stringent ROI, ROI target is how they measure ROI. If ROI is measured only as shopping cart revenue, but in fact, you've got a great e-commerce site with lots of information and people are shopping on it, meaning, meaning assessing, researching, evaluating, but they're sending their order in via a di- different mechanism, then the, the e-commerce initiative is not getting proper credit for the, the revenue that it's bringing in. Right. They may be searching online and phoning it in or talking to an account manager or they may be just getting product data off of a website to put together a bid submittal or whatever, and none of that revenue is typically credited to the website, right? Absolutely. Okay. Um, and uh, let's see, we have a question here. Regarding the sellers and commissions, companies should realize that customers that buy from multi-channels are usually larger and stickier over time. It's a win-win situation. Rewarding sellers for total customer, I think total customer sales is what he means, is usually best. I agree with that. I think, you know, you've got to, you know, these aren't sales order writers in the, in the old fashioned sense. I mean, they're relationship managers and, you know, you need to reward them for their entire, for the customer's entire purchases because they're building the relationships and selling the company throughout the, the or selling the distributor throughout the company. I would agree with that as well. Um, however, I think there's a, there's a, an assumption in the question that people that buy from multi-channels are usually larger um, what we've seen in our research is that, and this is with 15,000 end customers are shopping and buying research, is that larger customers um, may be more apt to use punch out or EI, um, but they also are large enough to command the attention of field sales, whereas smaller customers are not large enough to command the attention of field sales. They are more apt to use uh, e-commerce as a mechanism for ordering. Yeah, I think the large customers certainly are stickier though over time. I and mean, just by definition, we see churn more in the in the in the smaller deciles. Um, the next one, and I hear, you know, I still hear this, and it's really it kind of blows my mind. You, I still hear distributors say, you know what, if we had a great website, our customers wouldn't use it. I'm like, I mean, really, are there markets that are still stuck in the '80s? I, I mean, I'm not saying that all markets are the same in terms of the way e-commerce appeals to them, but there's hardly any market I can think of where some robust set of digital interactions, which to your point may not always include checking out through a shopping cart, but includes a great deal of information and the ability to interact very effectively with that distributor. Is, is, is there any market where that's just not important? Um, if, if we exclude the transactional component, um, I would say there is no market. I would agree with you. I mean, but there are certain markets where you really what you need is a great shopping site 
and great information. And then because there's some semi-custom aspect of the purchase, it doesn't really make sense to fit into an e-commerce setting, right? So some of the stuff I've seen in the, in the millwork space, uh, some aspects of, of purchasing cable, um, those are just a couple of examples. There are, there are examples where there's a semi-custom aspect where the, the ultimate purchase is harder to do in a web setting. Yeah. But I think to your broader point, I mean, there is an, the adoption curve of e-commerce and e-business um, is different for, for different sectors. Um, you know, we did a we did a voice of the customer for a distributor in the gas and welding space a number of years ago, and they they wanted to do a big, expensive e-commerce site. And the voice of the customer said, well, really not so much. I mean, if you think about a, a welding shop, you don't see many computers sitting around. That was true then. That's probably still true now. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I want to I push back on that. I mean, I think you said a number of years ago. I mean, the how many people don't have smartphones with them now and who didn't? you know, versus, versus several years ago, I think, and, and you look at the generational turnover in the marketplace. I mean, I, like, again, you may find some of that in that market, but don't you think after several years, the data would have started to change pretty you know, noticeably? It started to change, but it was, it's still going to be behind electronics, for example, right? Sure. I mean, if you mm-hmm. look at, you know, that's close to one end of the spectrum, electronics. I agree. DigiKey Arrow is at the other end of the spectrum. Right. All, all these are on a different adoption curve. I'm not saying it's it's static for that particular sector. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, look at construction supplies. I mean, you know, if you're doing a bid submittal for a multi-million dollar project, you don't really need to submit those orders via e-commerce because you've already sent the PO with releases into the distributor. That doesn't That doesn't mean, though, that having extensive capabilities that includes you know, the ability to buy stuff on demand for small tools and safety, et cetera, is an important one. It also, you know, doesn't mean you don't need some other robust capabilities around product data so that they can do those bits and mills to begin with. I, I think this point four, your customers wouldn't use a great website if you built one. It's related to point two, which is you've got a sales rep centric business. Mm. The ownership, the management thinks that it's all about relationships and the ownership or the management has a weak understanding of how customers really want to interact with them. Got it. Okay. So let's move on. Um, I see a lot of distributors who are sort of toying with selling online. So they'll say, well, let's put our clearance out there. Let's put our aged, um, our A items, et cetera, not our full line. And I, I think that's pretty much a doom strategy. I mean, there's a, there's an inventory sharing site called warehouse two and the guy who owns it and runs it is Mark. Uh, Tom Malonis, and they've got a lot of uh, distributors on there who are sort of sharing access to each other's inventory. And he said, even in that world, if people are just going to put their clearance and aged out there, they're they're just not going to succeed. You really need a broad assortment online. You know, you really need your full line uh, in order to in order to really make your online value proposition like your offline value proposition. Absolutely, and I, I would say that this point, point five, is related to the the ROI type. Our ROI target instead of the survival requirement in the sense that you see distributors say, well, let's just get Shopify for 80 bucks a month or whatever the nominal fee is. And let's put literally 150 SKUs, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they're they're, gonna, they're gonna probably going to be A items in that particular example, but they're not, they're not going, they're, they're just dipping their toe in with this type of an initiative. And they're saying, let's use some B2C e-commerce engine and, for, for the vast majority of distributors, for the vast majority of our listeners, 
um, you're going to need a full B2B e-commerce uh, platform, whether it's purchased or whether you're developing your own. Yeah. I mean, why go where there's less choice? Uh, the, you know, the reason that these big websites are capturing so much of the demand is it's just so quick and convenient to go there and buy everything at once. And so the last bullet on this page, for those of you who are on the podcast, is that one of the distributors that one of the reasons distributors are, are so great at building the wrong websites is that they build websites where customers can't see real time on hand inventory on the site. So uh, I, I, go ahead, Jonathan. I, but I, I think a more recent best practice is rather than showing the exact number of items in, in stock, just showing whether it's available or not. So, mm-hmm. if, so if I go to Ferguson, it's not going to tell me there's 285 of product yeah. XYZ in stock. It's going to tell me whether it's available or not. And I have the confidence that when Ferguson says it's available, unless I'm placing an order for 500,000 of these things, that I have, I have the confidence that if they show it being available, then yeah. I wouldn't purchase it. Uh, yeah, I would say uh, that's fine. I think you you have to live up to it. And if the customer orders more than you have in stock, you need to tell them on the spot, right? right. Um, but I, I think that, yeah, that's, that's fine. As long as you're, as long as you live up to it. I mean, I, I've seen distributors do this because they didn't have real time on hand inventory. And so they would just call back <laughs> if they were out of stock on an item. I, I don't think that's up to speed. Okay. Uh, all right. Next page. Uh, so why distributors are so great at building the wrong websites? Uh, they do not have enough product information. Go ahead, Jonathan. Yeah. So a number of the ones on, on this slide. Uh, if, if you're looking at the presentation, really have more of a technological solution. So there's not enough product information. I've used the term, we've just come to data 1.0 as an industry. And the most prominent e- examples of driving towards data 1.0 are initiatives like from affiliated distributors and iMark, um, where the product data is getting better every year. Um, and the cost to the distributor is much lower than if they were to to build this uh, themselves or to, to hire a third party. But the, but the basic thing about the not, not enough product information also has an analog in the, in the physical world, right? If I, go to a, if I go to a distributor branch or store and there's not enough product information about the things that are on the shelves um, and or the people in the store uh, can't give me the information that I need, I'm, I'm not going to purchase there. So so this is a place where the digital needs to, to mirror what happens in the physical. People have to be able to get the product information they need. With these large group initiatives, and there are others, there are, so there are co-ops, there are buying groups, there are associations that are aggregating data and making it available to their members at a, at a lower price than if the member were to, to go do it on their own. These things take time. They're, they're going to get better over time. But what I would also say is that you need to really make sure that if you're using that type of a, if you're participating in that type of initiative, that you take the 10% of your SKUs that form 90% of your revenue. And it usually is that pronounced, by the way. It could be even more like 7% or 93% of your revenue. Mm-hmm. You take that Pareto principle and you really go crush it on getting the product information on those SKUs. Yeah. Um, and for, for, for two reasons. First of all, that's what your customers are buying. So you got to make sure you're, you're putting the, the emphasis there. And second of all, it's going to help you with the search engines. Um, because otherwise, if you're part of those group initiatives, your product content is going to look similar to Google. And Google's going to say, well, I'm not sure what to do. There's 150 companies that right. have the same information. Who do I rank first? I don't, yeah, I, think, I don't think a lot of people know that. You know, if you've just got duplicate content, Google gives you no credit for it. They're looking for original content. 
We do have a question. Um, this is from Tom. What about not understanding customer buyer personas and the ways different buyer personas consume content, their likes and dislikes? So, so Tom, I meant to put this in last night. It's <laughs> one of our <laughs> good. It's a good catch. Uh, Thanks, Tom. Yeah, you're right on, Tom. This is a really key one. So if you if you create a one size fits all site and you've got a designer coming to purchase components for a prototype and you've got a procurement purchase person coming to purchase volume, they're going to need to interact with this site in very different ways. So I would say that the the one size fits all, um, no differentiation between personas is increasingly a, a fail. Ian, yeah, you know I would say this is an expert question, right? This is, I mean, this is a question from an expert. And, uh, uh, you know, when you start talking about a personalization based on persona, that's a level of website sophistication that very few distributors have. It's much more common in retail. And, and I absolutely agree that this should be a goal. I would say that you have to get all this other stuff done first because it's just sort of nuts and bolts, you know, baseline requirement stuff, but you should be working towards the next level of e-commerce sophistication, which is what Tom's referring to. So I think it's a fantastic question, probably something we should have included, but you know, if you can't do that until you actually have, you know, a a functioning site that's properly priced and has the right assortment in it. Um, And we have another question. Let's see here. One way uh, distributors get it wrong when building websites is that they basically want to take their ERP, which is where their associates are used to working and put it on the web instead of building capabilities that are already best practice in established e-commerce sites across many industries. So they're just taking their ERP and extending it onto the web. Have you seen that, Jonathan? I'm not entirely sure I understand the question. Does that mean just taking the product content that's in an ERP? As a- I think so. I, th- I think basically it's an ERP look at uh, everything from transactions to product data and extending it to the web. You know, it's almost like uh, the old green screen look, right? I mean, you know, ERPs have, have product information that are designed for transactional purposes, not for shopping and buying purposes. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think they're, I've, I've seen this before where you, you've, you've actually got a PIM, a product information management system, and you're using the same data in that PIM for the ERP as you're using for the website. That's a very common way that I think you're just taking ERP data and putting it on a line. I'm assuming that's the sort of thing that this questioner is, is pointing towards. Well, and, and I think part of the thing that happens is ERPs have limits on how many characters you can have in those descriptions. Yep. I mean, this, this, is, this is almost bound to fail because of that limitation. And I can't tell you how many sites that we look at. I and mean, again, we're looking at 3,000 sites as part of our um, measurement of e-commerce adoption. I can't tell you how many sites I look at where you do a search for product and you get an entire page of no graphic image available, right? There's, yeah, there's, right. there's like 40 or 50 little icons. Sure. And the the industry, your customers expect more today than they did five years ago. And I think that's an important point here is that, you know, wh- where the puck is going, what Ian was talking about is going forward, people expect uh, certain things that maybe they didn't expect five years ago. And And basic good product content is just absolutely table stakes at this point. And probably underappreciated. I know there's a guy named John Walker that I worked with at Granger many years ago, and he does a lot of uh, product data consulting. And his his quote on this is, you should manage your product data with the same rigor you manage your inventory. So with mm. the same rigor you manage your inventory. So, you know, distributors, you know, they audit their inventory and they or they do cycle counts and they, 
you know, are very careful about reordering it and managing the working capital. And then product data is just sort of this wasteland of, you know, stuff that nobody wants to do. And so I think it's a, I think that's a good way to approach it. I think another piece on getting the product data pertains to use of first party versus third party resources. So if you're going to take an initiative to, to do this, I've seen very few distributors that are less than a, at a billion dollars successfully get all the product data they need without third party help. Uh, what happens is at any point in time, it's 18 months from being done. So at the beginning of 2018, it was 18 months from being done. At the beginning of 2019, it was 18 months from being done. And it just kind of keeps going that way. And so the, the third party sources are going to help you get that volume, uh, perhaps maybe not as much on the quality side, yeah. uh, but to get that volume of data, you probably are going to need a third party source, unless you're a really just very large distributor and you've got the resources to, to make all this happen yourselves. Yeah, we, we have another comment here. It's from a manufacturer who says, we are spending millions to create and syndicate our product content for free to our distributors. However, some are slow to take it up. ERP does not contain rich e-com content. So I think he, he sent this in probably as part of our last discussion, but you know, in terms of the, the ERP not containing the rich e-com content, but he's absolutely right. I mean, look, there are lots and lots and, and an increasing number of manufacturers selling directly. And I think that comes out of frustrations with distributors saying, hey, I don't want to carry your inventory anymore. I want you to ship direct, which is basically turning their manufacturers into distributors. And it's distributors not keeping up with the times. I mean, in my experience, manufacturers are by far more sophisticated digitally than distributors are on average. And so if you've invested millions of dollars to, you know, develop all this product data and nobody's using it, you know, uh, you've got to get a return on that investment. And so this, we're just encouraging distributors to sell direct. What's also interesting, though, um, is that it's the, the level of preparedness for manufacturers is uneven. We, we've been involved with the deployment of an e-commerce site recently, and they have a large manufacturer's input to them. And we had expected that, well, this manufacturer's just got it together when it comes to sure. giving us the product content. And turned out they were very decentralized and, right. you know, Content we got from one division looked different. From sure, the but that's more the exception among manufacturers than it is distributors. Fair enough. Point taken. Yeah. Yep. So uh, this uh, Tom again has said uh, product data is the scrubbing toilets of digital. Nobody wants to do it, but it's extremely important. I love that. That's the way I'm going to phrase this from now on. <laughs> that's great. We will use your your comment with attribution after. <laughs> that's right. Well, you may not want attribution. Okay. Um, Okay, uh, so you want to go through a couple of these uh, next ones, Jonathan? Yeah, you bet. So can't can't find what I need. So th this means that there's a there's a gap between your search engine and your product content. What I've seen with a lot of the e-commerce platforms, I think it's gotten better in the last couple of years, is that the native on-site search is in some ways lacking. So the the symptom is if I can't find what I need. I'm not going to, I'm not going to shop here. And it's particularly maddening if it's a really common thing. Like I know you carry this product. I'm searching for it either by uh skew, skew number, uh, manufacturer skew, um, or I'm searching for it hierarchically. I can't find what I need. So I'm simply going to go to another place. The good news is that if your on-site search is not good, um, perhaps because of the e-commerce engine that you're using, there are third-party engines that are, inexpensive to deploy. Um, I've run the ROI on these. You, you don't need much lift in sales from a better search engine to justify the cost of that better search engine. So there's a nice technological solution that you can deploy. Fair enough. I agree. 
good, good. Um, okay, so the site is hard to use or slow. This is a technical issue you're referring to here, I assume. It's, it's, yeah, I mean, it could be, it is a technical issue. It's a, it's a usability issue. Either the navigation is set up, I have to go through five levels of browsing to get to a product, or I can't navigate easily, or the site is unresponsive. So again, all of these, the not enough product information, can't find what I need, site is hard to use or slow. There's an analog in the, in the, brick and mortar world. You know, if I go into a branch, I can't get information or I can't find what I need or the salespeople are unresponsive, I'm simply going to go somewhere else. And that that standard is is getting higher. The bar is getting higher by the day now in the B2B world. Yeah. So we have another comment uh, that uh, search and product data are inherently connected. The search is only as good as the data fuel. I, I agree with that. In fact, I would say that that's the that the search can't be any better than the data fuel. It might be a little bit worse because you can have a poorly configured search engine, but it's never going to be better than the quality of the data. Absolutely. So I think that's an important point. Thank you so much for that. Okay, product unavailable. So I mean, I think we've all seen this where you know the product's listed but you can't get it. And I, my experience, Jonathan, is that distributors are particularly bad about. I mean, that really, for the most part, don't offer third-party shipping. They just say, you know, they kind of do what they've always done, which is they offer a back order on it. You know, you're not, you can't, you really can't continue the transaction. Uh, you just have the offer to back order it and we'll ship it to you when we get it, right? Yeah, I think there's, I think there's a couple of use cases here. One is that the product's not in stock today. The other is that the lead time, if the site is able to provide a lead time, doesn't meet the requirement. And then the third is that the information about availability or lead time is unclear or missing altogether. Customers, this is a fundamental thing of what distributors do. They provide assortment, they provide availability, and they provide information about availability. So if your site is flawed along one of these three dimensions, you're going to find users bouncing from your website because they, they can't get the product they need. Yeah. I, I agree with that. And let's talk about pricing because it's such a, a difficult area. It's a, it's a, you know, it's a, just a pit of obstacles for distributors. And I get it because unlike retailers, distributors are selling at different price points. So I think you have to distinguish between pricing that's available before you log in and pricing that's available after you log in. And most of what we're talking about is pricing that's available after you log in, right? I mean, no one's expecting every distributor to have every SKU priced for anybody, you know, the homeowner who comes by and looks at your website, you know, that's fair. But if you have customers logging in and they are seeing items that are marked call for price, you're going to kill your website because imagine what you, how you would react. Let's say you're shopping on a site and you're, you know, you're, you're working on a project, say it's for your house and you need five items and you put four items into the cart, you search for the fifth item and it says call for price. Well, now you have to make the phone call that you were trying to avoid by shopping online to begin with. And if you tell customers who are logged in that they have to call for price, you will doom your website because people will just learn that using your website adds a step, reduces their productivity. They might as well just call to begin with or go to somebody else's website. What do you think, Jonathan? Absolutely. Um, I, I think you stated it perfectly. The, the call the call for price in, increases the, the time they, they have to spend getting what they want and they're going to go to the most efficient solution they can find. And that may be a competitor. Yeah. Right. Right. 
um, I, I, I just think it's you're, you're doomed. Um, we did have uh, another manufacturer jump in, and this is about the prior point about availability. This is we provide an API for the distributor to show product availability from the manufacturer. Uh, be interesting to know how many of your distributors uh, actually use that API because um, I think it's fantastic that you offer it. But my guess is that uh, a lot of the distributors aren't using it. Uh, they probably, you know, if you don't have availability for your own stuff, you're not going to be using your manufacturer's API. I mean, look, you know, you, you have to have a real digital website that is robust and has a great user experience because people are comparing you to the best sites that they use, whether or not those are B2B sites. Okay, next is uh, online pricing lower than contract price. So this was yours, Jonathan. You want to explain this one? Yeah, it's very simple. If, if I'm a customer and I see a lower online price than the contract price I'm getting, that is just not going to sit well with me. So the, the symptom is going to be probably lost business and not just the transaction. You may actually lose the customer in that case, right? If they feel that you are treating them unfairly in terms of price, you may lose them as a customer. Um, right. Okay. And then next customers can't even see account specific pricing. And, you know, this is another one where, okay, if you're not going to integrate your website to your ERP, then you're not really creating a digital experience that's competitive with a, with your non-digital experience. Right. And, and you also, and this leads to the second one, if you do, if you, if you don't have account-specific pricing, you're probably showing higher prices, right? Because most account-specific pricing is lower than standard pricing, which leads to the last point, which is that for a lot of distributors, the website is the most expensive way to buy from that company. I see this over and over again, and then I hear executives complain that the website's not working. Well, would you buy from a company if the website was on, online, if the website was more expensive than picking up the phone and calling. And I mean, this is a self-defeating mechanism. And yet it happens all the time. If you want your website to succeed, it's got to be price-wise competitive with what customers will be charged either by calling your sales rep or calling into a branch or whatever. Yeah, I think there's a broader sort of policy issue or business model issue even on pricing. Um, And we've spoken about it in the past, which is, First of all, my showing pricing, a lot of distributors are resistant to do this. And then second of all, what is the pricing that I'm showing? So if we think about, you know, 10 deciles of customers, um, top decile is your largest customers, second decile is the second 10% of your customers and so on and so forth. Roughly, this is a broad brush comment, roughly your pricing should be at about the pricing that the near the bottom of the second decile. That's roughly what should be on your website. That will mitigate the uh, on, online pros, pricing lower than contract price. Uh, customers can't see account-specific pricing. So when they log in, they'll be, be able to see the account-specific pricing. They'll see a, a reasonable price. You're not going to scare away people, which is, which is the biggest fear that, that distributors have in putting price out there in the first place. But the reality is, Wait, you know, what, what's, the biggest, to, what's the biggest fear? That you're going to scare people away with price. Because it's too right? high? It's because it's too high, right? Yeah, I, that may be. I mean, what I see some distributors afraid of is that they're going to make it difficult for their account managers to go out and raise prices on individual orders if the website shows a lower price. So they're not afraid of scaring customers as much as they are afraid of, you know, for uh, a small number of individual transactions, they won't be able to optimize gross margin on those specific orders. I mean, I, I think that's wildly foolish, but I've heard it before. Interesting. Okay. Uh, so really the, the takeaway, the bottom line from all of this is that your e-commerce site 
must have the same value proposition as the rest of your business. This should, this isn't complicated, right? I mean, you, you can't create this defective sort of, uh, crippled, incomplete, uh, hard to use value proposition online and then be disappointed when it doesn't work. Just like you put a lot of thought into your branch operations and your, the way you answer your phones and how you make sales calls and your deliveries, you've got to study that online set of capabilities and you've got to deliver something that is equal in terms of its appeal to customers and the same in terms of the value that they get versus other channels. That's the standard. If you try to compromise against that in any way, you will fail. And I don't know how else to make it more clear than that. Jonathan? I think that's I think that's where it's going. I mean, I think you know a lot of distributors have gotten to the point they can take orders, they've got product data flowing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think this is the new aspiration over the next two to three years that people have to get to. And that so when you say it has to have the same value proposition as the rest of your business, I would say also that your your digital actually needs to be part of how you deliver your value proposition. So we yeah. we talked a couple of sessions ago about services. You know, same thing with support. You need to be able to deliver good support digitally, right? Somebody somebody gets in touch with you through a chat. They're not getting the information they need from the chat person. You need to be able to help them escalate to get to exactly the right person that they want to get to because they, they don't have patience for dealing with what is often the limited capability of a chat person. Um, so I think as we, as we sort of go into the sort of 2.0 period of e-commerce and distribution, it's making sure that you're you're able to deliver your value proposition in part digitally where it is appropriate. Uh, that might mean configuration tools. You know, we're we're hearing uh, about manufacturers. I know the the one manufacturer who's asked us questions on on this session has has put together great configuration tools. How do those make it onto the distributor site? That would be just another example of how you start to deliver your value proposition. Um, you're you're enhancing what you're doing in a pre-sales setting by mirroring something that you would do in the offline world now in the online world. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think the you can't apply a different standard to your customers than you would follow yourself. I mean, you would not go to online to, to a website that had you know incomplete product data. And in fact, you you know people don't. You know, you, we Google for stuff, and if we don't find it on Amazon first, and we go look for it somewhere else and it's got no image or it's got, you know, sort of a skimpy product explanation. You can't tell if it's in stock, you don't buy there. And that's the same standard that customers are applying to distributors. And I just think it's a matter of survival now. I mean, the world is becoming digital. The COVID crisis has rapidly accelerated the switch to online buying. Millions of people are probably buying online on a regular basis who bought online occasionally or not at all before. They're not all going to go back to their old habits when this is over. And so if you were caught flat-footed because you did not have a great website, then you should really go back and look at the things that are in this presentation uh, and start just commit that, look, we don't know what the ROI is, but we have to do this because it's required for survival in the future. We're not trying to become Amazon because we have to build something that's differentiated and distinct, but we have to have a baseline set of capabilities that's actually very robust, great product, great uh, data competitive pricing and the ability to navigate search and check out quickly. It's not that complicated. I mean, it's the challenge is not that complicated building. It's really hard. So, so Ian, what's your understanding in not just 2020, but 2020 COVID 
that distributor owners or CEOs don't get the need to do digital? How do you how do you understand that phenomenon? How could they not get it? I I'm not sure. <laughs> well, I th- you know I don't know. I mean I think look you know it, it, it's hard to know that the platform is burning when it's heating up very slowly, right? It's the old you know you know frog that's cooked in the boiling water, which is apocryphal by the way. And someone has contributed you know hey it's institutionalized thinking that could very well uh, be the case. I think there's an age problem. I, I I mean I think I don't think for the most I think there's a growing gap between the demographics of senior executives and distribution and the customers who are buying from them. Mm-hmm. And if you're not out there all the time talking to customers and getting to know them and, and, or maybe doing market research to understand their needs, then it's easy for this thing to gradually slip by you. And I think, uh, I think we're about out of time. So we'll end it here. This is our contact information. So my email and phone number on the left, Jonathan's on the right. Uh, you can find our content and including soon you'll have the access to this webinar and as, and as a podcast on distributionstrategy.com. So please visit us there. We love to have your questions. I hope you'll come back for the next one. Thanks so much for your fantastic participation. And Jonathan, it's been wonderful working with you yet again. Feeling is mutual, Ian. All right. Have a great day, everyone.